On this episode of Progressive Palaver, the group discusses Genesis's Foxtrot. Welcome to Progressive Palaver, a group of lifelong friends and appreciators of music discussing the greatest progressive rock bands album by album. I'm Joe Beauclair, and on this episode, I'm joined by my very good friends Tom Corcoran, Ken Gregory, and Paul Zotter as we continue in the Genesis catalog, this episode covering Foxtrot. So, gentlemen, I got through the introduction without using the word seminal, and yet here we are. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> nice job. Is is Foxtrot a seminal album? Yes, I, I think it definitely is. I, Entirely, I, I agree. Yes. <laughs> well, you know, it's always good when you've got a four-person palaver and you have unanimous. Un- 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 a unanimous decision. Unanimity. Unanimity. You know, we've, there you go. We've thrown we've thrown the word seminal around a little bit loosely earlier in the in our days. Have so we really? I I, 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 I I don't know. I feel like we did it. Some, uh, you know, early on. I don't think so. I think we. It's very well deserved here. You know, and and let's uh, right out of the gate. Let's just state the obvious. And we can we can have the argument overall in the Genesis catalog, but I think it's pretty safe to say that Foxtrot is the most perfect manifestation of five-person Genesis. I would agree. I, I would agree. I um. Well, I mean, as I was saying earlier, I I think. These three middle albums, Nursery Crime, Foxtrot, and uh, Selling England by the Pound, are, uh, are, are the best of the Gabriel era. And I have trouble sometimes having a favorite album of the three. Um, if you talk to me at any given day, I'm going to say something different. Um, now, most of the time it will be Foxtrot, but you know, it, it's, still, it's still a very tight race. Uh, so, you know, it's, it's very difficult. And I can totally respect that because I've had, I've had selling England periods. I had a, a, I've had smaller nursery crime periods, but, but yeah, as much as I've always admired Foxtrot, I don't know that until recently, I really appreciated just how wonderful it was. Ken, you, uh, you had something to add there? Oh, amazing. I just, I just can't get over this album um the three tracks in the middle that i consider the three sleepers on any given day one of them might be my favorite song yeah right exactly mm-hmm. yeah beautiful yeah i mean among the these three that you're that you brought up tom i feel like on selling in england by the pound on nursery crimes there there are songs where i'm I'm just waiting for the next thing. You know, I'm waiting for the for something else to come. And Ken, you mentioned I think 
I think we you mentioned early on in, in the first couple of albums, you know, you, you, the payoff is worth the seven minute wait. And sometimes that's how I feel at certain parts of nursery crime and and selling England by the pound. But with Foxtrot, I, I am not waiting for anything when I put this on. I am just <laughs> enjoying every bit. Although sometimes I am waiting for a flower. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Let's not get ahead of ourselves. <laughs> so, you know, in terms of, of the context, so we have to go back to to high school when we discovered Genesis, as most people our age did at that point. A lot of people discovered Genesis. And again, I'll go back to our friend Kathy. And I remember Foxtrot was, was one, she gave me it, you know, it, you discover Genesis, you discover that there's old Genesis, you know, beyond the lamb lies down on Broadway or whatever. And you go, you find someone like Kathy who knows them and you go, Kathy, hook me up. And she gave me a cassette and I honestly don't recall what was on the flip side, but I do remember having a, a dubbed cassette of Foxtrot. And, you know, much like the rest of this catalog, and I probably actually already told the story, I don't know that as a a 16, 17 year old person that I got it. Um, it was easy to sort of appreciate Watcher of the Skies on some sort of cerebral level. And of course, every, you know, again, as you start to get into prog rock, everyone's, ooh, supper's ready, 23 minutes, yeah, wonderful. But I, I personally didn't really comprehend how good this was. And, you know, looking at it for this exercise, when you start looking at it closely and, and trying to fit it into the larger picture and you compare it to nursery crime and where they came from, and it, it just, it causes my brain to explode at really how good and balanced this is. You know, a lot of times when we talk about, you know, some of these prog bands, uh, uh, the 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 personalities get in the way, right? And you know, there's S Steve Howe and Rick Wakeman are, are fighting for space, or or you know, Chris Squire and Bill Bruford are, are trying to get on top of each other in the mix or, you know, whatever the case may be. But John Anderson has his tambourine too loud. John Anderson has yeah. his tambourine too loud. Exactly. All of these things can happen. Um, you know, Roger Waters and David Gilmore are, are sniping at each other and, and you know, all, all of that. But here, every to me, this album, there no one has mastery over anyone else and all five voices so to speak are represented you know proportionally and and appropriately and i think that for me that's what i find so exciting about this it, it's i'm not overwhelmed by anyone i can take in the whole thing and all five bring something wonderful to the table mm. so true. they do i did find not to completely contradict anything there but <laughs> i did find that tony banks and peter gabriel were the ones who um would mix it up i, I did come across a couple instances uh over the last week where um 
different people in the band were saying usually it was it was tony banks and and peter gabriel and and then um in in one of those reissue documentaries um tony banks had a, had a couple of little jabs <laughs> um at, at the end so i think basically i agree with you joe but uh, there i'm sure there we can find some um some rough waters there a little bit oh a- absolutely and i'm i'm only talking about the end result right the music that right. we hear the the sort of interpersonal relationships legendary as far as this goes and and you know what you talk about i think is funny because you know when genesis came together it was it was peter and tony were sort of friends and 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 Aunt and and Mike were friends, right? So you would you would have expected that Tony and Pete would would be sort of tighter, but yeah, apparently they're not. You know, I, I've I've probably watched some of the same interviews that that you have, Tom. And like when you, and in fact, I just watched one earlier this evening before we were doing this, and I happened to just roll into the um, the section on the lamb. And to this day, Tony pulls no punches on how he feels about that album. Mm-hmm. It's really, and he was sitting right next to Peter. It was kind of funny. <laughs> <laughs> I, I have to see that. That's the one that I haven't seen yet. So I look forward to watching that one. It was, yeah, it was, it was pretty amazing. But, but yeah, I mean, you know, and maybe that even makes the end result of the music even more amazing. And I like that Doc Rotoni describes Pete's flute playing <laughs> as not being virtuosic or something. <laughs> I haven't seen that one. <laughs> I love Pete's flute playing. It's so innocent and pure, but, you know, wasn't good enough for Tony. It is. You know, it, it's it's strictly melodic. Uh, one quick quote that I want to uh, put out here, because I think it, it fits into exactly what we were just talking about. And again, as I was watching this documentary... And they they had this in the documentary in relation to Supper's Ready, but I, I think it applies sort of overall here. And this is Peter Gabriel talking, and he says, When we got it right, we had something none of us could do on our own. You know, and, and we've had this conversation with, with Yes, right? You, you have those moments, and we've had it with Merlion as, as well. You have those moments where the stars align, and for whatever reason, all or most of the creative energies are flowing in a similar direction. And when that happens, magic happens. You know, foxtrot happens, close to the edge happens, awaken happens. Um, I would say fear happens or afraid of sunlight happens, you know, that sort of stuff, you know? And and I think this is this is exactly what we're seeing here. And, and again, that's not to take away from from nursery crime, where I think they were still learning and, and sort of gelling as as this five piece band. It's not to take away from selling England or even the Lamb, because not that those aren't great albums and they don't have great moments, but it's not consistently great front to back, which is what I think we're dealing with here. Mm-hmm. I think one of the things that I've I've thought about Foxtrot this go around and and it was definitely stemmed off of watching the reissue interview and I was I was floored absolutely floored when Phil Collins talked about how 
he would still be going to see Yes every Wednesday at the Marquee Club. <laughs> right? Yes. And I'm like, wow, like, you know, these guys are totally contemporaries of one another. And and every, every Wednesday night they're playing at the Marquee Club and he's going. And he was fond of their, the way they were just putting these musical complexities into the music. And it's not like anything before Foxtrot wasn't musically complex. But when I thought about that frame of reference and I just was listening to Foxtrot, I just thought, wow, Phil is really like he's just kind of taken over on some of these tracks. Like there's just like he 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 just has that presence. And I and I think of it in the same way as when Neil Peart joined Rush and you start with Anthem. Yeah. Right. It's just like. There is no doubt that this track is different because of Neil Peart's presence. And I feel like more so than in Nursery Crimes, Phil delivers that in Foxtrot. And I think it elevates the musicality of this record tons, tons. And I love it. I love it. Yes is a fantastic segue. I don't suppose you guys are interested in what was going on in the timeline of Progressive Rock. Ken. We would love tell, to talk tell. about the the timeline of progressive rock in 1972. <laughs> indeed, indeed. <laughs> 1972. Well, um, yes, released close to the edge in September, and Foxtrot came out in November. So it's a magical time. I, I can I can barely imagine what was going on, all the energy, the visceral energy at that time. Um, I'm not too familiar with Obscured by Clouds, but not too many Pink Floyd fans really hold that up as their favorite. Uh, but uh, uh, Floyd was doing very well at this time. Uh, Caravan with Waterloo Lily, Gentle Giant with Three Friends, Jethro Tull with Thick as a Brick, Manfred Mann's Earth Band with their self-titled album. Um, oh, The Straubs oh. uh, of Rick Wakeman fame. Uh, put out their Grave New World album. Um, so it, it, it's an absolute magical time. And, uh, uh, you know, we, we've covered this period um, in music in detail. I thought I'd throw in an extra little screwdriver for y'all. Um, 1972 is famous for the Anti-Ballistic Missile Treaty. Oh, there you go. Excellent. So one way to get out of the Cold War, and that's a glimmer of hope that society will not be blown away. So, yeah, you know, it, it, it's, I guess I, you know, we have the, the, the benefit of hindsight, right? But again, just imagine within a month or two being able to go to the store and buy close to the edge and Foxtrot. Holy <laughs> crap. Are you kidding me? It makes 1994 look like a pile of dog crap. How could you even compute that? I mean, it's taken me almost 18 years to figure out Supper's Ready. Right. And, and, <laughs> I mean, how could you handle both of those records at the same time? I don't even know. I, I mean... But but it's interesting. So, Joe, you brought up the, the, the point about the, our entry into Genesis and this particular album. So I do believe it was Ken that, that drug me to the Invisible Touch show at the Spectrum uh in 86 i guess maybe maybe does that sound right maybe it was yeah. later than that 88 it was great it was great they opened with mama it was great it was great and i 
Uh, then, after seeing them the first time, I was like, okay, now I need to go buy some Genesis and I need to listen to it. So, of course, I, I picked up um, the Mama album and Invisible Touch. And did I listen to anything else? Maybe Abacab? I don't know. But I saw them again at the vet that, you know, later that year. And they, and then I was enamored by this, this sort of medley that they did at the end. And people kept telling me, oh, they did Supper's Ready. They did a, they did a part of Supper's Ready. And so I was like, okay, well, it's time to get involved into old Genesis. And I'll just go try to find this song, Supper's Ready. So I ended up buying Foxtrot because I, I was at the record store and and Supper's Ready was the last track on Foxtrot. So I bought that cassette. And I don't think I ever even got to listen to Supper's Ready because I was so enamored with the rest of the of the tracks that preceded mm -hmm. it. And I I don't I I don't know if this is what you were you were saying, Joe, but I didn't really have a full appreciation of Supper's Ready until this go around. And I really gave it the mental effort because I had simply been so distracted by all the rest of the greatness on on Foxtrot. In fact, had we just done the palaver without me even listening, I probably would have said to you, I don't think there's anything in Supper's Ready that isn't done better <laughs> in the previous tracks on Foxtrot. <laughs> but now I feel completely different about that it. Would have, that would have been very provocative to use a palaver <laughs> word. <laughs> I, I almost wish we could have had that conversation. <laughs> Yeah, you know, I I don't know if yeah my my experience wasn't quite the same because I, I I just I don't think I was I was mature enough to understand what I was dealing with, but yeah that that is fascinating and but but I I'm with you that you know once you you know once you the light goes on with with suppers ready beyond the fact that you know it's it's a it's a big multi-part and this that and the other thing um yeah it's it's really something and i know we've we in the in our in our conversations offline we've been talking about you know different available versions of this with phil singing and with with nad singing and and even you know that little snippet with ray wilson singing and you know when you I think it helps to sort of see how different people interpret the different parts and, and, and it having thought about this and looked in a lot of different nooks and crannies this week, I, I have to say that I've got to give it to the Foxtrot version. I, I as much as there are things on the seconds out that I, I absolutely love and, and we'll get there. Uh, you know, I, I just think The way I view this song is, it's it's the the foxtrot version I think that captures the the essence of it, or it, maybe a better way to say it is it establishes the essence of Supper's Ready. Mm. And and there's there's so much of Peter in that, yeah. obviously, so that has a lot to do with it. But maybe maybe we're getting ahead well, of ourselves. Know. Well, you, you brought up something. Um, 
on one of the, on the uh, I believe it's the Foxtrot reissue uh, uh, documentary when Tony Banks, I believe it was Tony Banks who was talking about um, he was comparing Supper's Ready to Stairway to Heaven. He's like, oh, everyone knows, you know, Stairway to Heaven and Supper's Ready are like the, you know, uh, quintessential prog songs. When he said it, I was like, oh, God, it's kind of arrogant for you to kind of include one of your songs with, like, the great songs. Usually you want to have someone else say it. Um, but it was interesting to have him talk about it because when you really break it down, he was right when he when he said, you know, the reason why, why most people don't know about Supper's Ready is because it's a half hour long. It's like, what, like 20, 28 minutes. <laughs> and, you know, most people just, you know, can't listen to a 28-minute song, um, even back in the early 70s. <laughs> um, so, but um, it really is, I mean, Supper's Ready, it, you know, really is to the, a, a prog audience, um, at, at least in the in the very top tier of, of songs, even if you're the one saying it in your band. <laughs> so I kind of gave him a pass on that because Supper's Ready was so good. <laughs> yeah, officially, officially, by the way, it's it's running time is 22.57, just so that we're all on the same page. <laughs> okay. That's okay. par for the course with, with with Tony, though. He's a rather blunt personality. Yeah, that, that, is, the, uh, that is the beef with Tony. So, you know, and... In our excitement to get into this, uh, perhaps we missed some of the, uh, the the format. So let me do the official particulars, and then we can open the door and explore the beauty that is Foxtrot further than we have already. Let's do the particulars. Let's do that. <laughs> so Foxtrot um, was released, as Ken said, in 1972. It was produced by Dave Hitchcock and released on the label Charisma has the now classic five-man lineup of Tony Banks, Steve Hackett, Phil Collins, Peter Gabriel, and Mike Rutherford. Track listing is Watcher of the Skies, Timetable, Get Em Out by Friday, Can Utility and the Coastliners, Horizons, and Supper's Ready, including Lover's Leap, The Guaranteed Eternal Sanctuary Man, Ignaton and Istakon and their Band of Merry Men, How Dare I Be So Beautiful, Willow Farm, Apocalypse in 9-8, co-starring the delicious talents of the Gabble Wretched, and As Sure as Eggs is Eggs, Aching Men's Feet. Foxtrot is the fourth studio album by the English progressive rock band Genesis, released in 1972 on Charisma Records. It was their first album to chart in the UK, reaching number 12, and featured the 23-minute track Supper's Ready. The album was recorded following the tour in support of their previous album, Nursery Crime, which saw them gain popularity, including a well-received slot at the Lincoln Great Western Festival. The album was written over the summer of 1972 and combined songs that had already been performed live with new material worked out in jam sessions. Recording began in August with John Anthony, but sessions were prone to tension and disagreements. After a short Italian tour, sessions resumed with Dave Hitchcock taking over production duties. The cover was the final Genesis work to be designed by Paul Whitehead, featuring a fox wearing a red dress. Frontman Peter Gabriel wore the dress and a fox's head on stage for the following tour, which garnered press attention and greatly improved the group's profile. 
Foxtrot was the first Genesis album to chart in the UK and received largely positive reviews. A non-album single, Happy the Man, was released at the same time. The album has continued to attract critical praise and was reissued with a new stereo and 5.1 surround sound mix as part of their 2008 Genesis 1970-1975 box set. One other mm. thing... Um, as Ken and I were discussing in the last episode, nursery crime, and you know the the sort of the the gelling, if you will, of Five Man Genesis and everything else, we had sort of you know come across, you know how the 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 five people were interacting and how the pieces were starting to come together, and at the time I got all excited because I found a couple of quotes from Mike Rutherford in his book regarding the songwriting in this period. So uh, I'll quote, I'll just go through a couple things here, but, but this one, as a band, we'd found a formula for writing music, short pieces that we joined together into a single song, the length of which, um, he says 15 to 20 minutes, but we know there aren't that many that long, would allow us to do something brave and interesting. Supper's Ready, the song that took up the whole second side of our third album, Foxtrot, was a great example. And then he goes on to talk about, here we go, half the art of writing is to know what's good. Coming up with the stuff is one thing, but recognizing it is another. Tony is the same on keyboards. I can walk into the room and he will play for a couple of minutes. I'll hear some amazing chords and get excited that this could be the setting for a new song, yet he has no real idea what he just played. One song, Watcher of the Skies, had been written while we were in Italy a few months before. We were playing at the Palisport in Reggio Nel Emilia near Parma, a huge, crap, echoey place, when in the middle of the sound check, Tony played the opening two chords on his Mellotron. They sounded incredible, although once again, I'm not sure he knew just how good they were. Rutherford's got some very interesting quotes in his book with regard to... <laughs> To the ability of other people with regard to songwriting. <laughs> mm. So, you know, we always talk about, or, or people always talk about Tony and his abrupt, abrupt nature and everything else. Uh, Mike Rutherford isn't a, a, you know, a saintly schoolboy either in that regard. And he seems to have a fairly decent regard for himself, but hard to argue <laughs> with the, uh, hard to argue with the results. So I, I just thought that was, was mm. interesting. Um, you know, the, the fact that they were seemingly doing this very deliberately. This is the way they had decided they were going to write songs. And, and I think it's very much reflected in, in sort of the song structure that we see here, certainly on Foxtrot. Um, you know, maybe, maybe it went, you know, as far as it did and you could almost view the lamb lies down on Broadway as a, as that taken to the extreme, I think. But, mm. but for this, you know, the, the point is they were doing this on purpose and, and very much um, with an eye for doing it. One other quick thing I'll, I'll, I'll throw out Paul a few minutes ago, you were talking about Phil kind of taking things over, right? Um, one of the things that I was listening to in preparation for this episode was the Genesis live album. I know we had talked about that a little bit. If you listen to the version of The Knife that is on Genesis Live versus what's on Trespass, it yeah. is it, it is night and day. And I 
credit that to Phil and Steve coming in and really just flexing their muscles on that. Yeah, I've, that's a, such a great point. And I don't know if I sent this to you guys on the group chat or not, but after listening to Genesis live quite by accident one day, I think my Spotify was just running through. I uh, was so impressed with the song and I think you're right on. I thought the same thing about the knife. I was just like, wow. And Genesis may be the band that bucks the trend of live albums for me. Uh, I've enjoyed so much. Usually live albums, I don't even care about. I just, you know, Exit Stage Left was like the exception to all of it. Uh, but every time I listen to, you know, some of these old live tracks, I love them. They're, they're great. You know, it, it's, it's a healthy debate. Like you, sometimes you listen to these tra these live album cuts and you're like, damn, that's better than the, uh, than the, uh, actual recording. Oh, so true. Um, Genesis <laughs> definitely has those moments. I, I, I just would offer, um, live at Pompeii. I think we'll get to that at some point in, in two or three years. Yeah, exactly. At some point. <laughs> Uh, along the lines of the the format, though, Joe, one of the things that that struck me in the that Mike Rutherford said in that reissue interview was how they just seemed to be putting everything they possibly could into into the songs. And you know, when you listen to tracks like "Watcher of the Skies" and "Get Him Out by Friday," there really is an awful lot going on rhythmically underneath the vocals, and the vocals are probably doing more more than they need to uh, in, in, in a regular. So there's just a lot going on. And yet the funny thing was when I was 17 or 18 or however old I was and, and I, and I picked this up, like, that's exactly what I wanted. I wanted like all the shit going on in the background <laughs> and like lyrics going and everything. So I, I loved it. I loved it. And I still do. Yeah, absolutely. Hmm. <laughs> hmm. Mm. Well, you know, that kind of brings me to um, a little bit of a revelation that I've had uh, with with early Genesis. And when you, you hear Phil Collins talk about the process of the songwriting, a couple things come to mind. Uh, Phil Collins was saying that the, how they wrote, you know, they, they write, they wrote the music and you know, they, for, for the most part, you know, they would um, give it to Peter and Peter would go and, and do his thing and he would come back and sing in the studio. And a couple things came to mind when, when Phil Collins is, t is telling the story. Number one, Phil Collins is saying that he was like shocked at like how, how busy some of the vocals were over the already busy rhythm and and arrangements so all the instrumentation that was that was going on um so it actually made me appreciate peter uh peter gabriel even more because you realize what he was given was uh something that was very busy okay uh you know it's it's it it, it, it was very difficult to write anything over a lot of the intricacies of uh, of the music, but over that, what uh, and what I found amazing is that the way, and I guess you know most bands did this back then. This just wasn't Genesis, but 
there wasn't any like studio B's that they would go to to do their demos, you know? Like they actually laid down these tracks and boom, they were done. And they were like, okay, <laughs> these are the tracks that we're going to have. Let's take some time and, and, and get some uh, lyrics and, and, and vocals. And what, and what came back was that, you know, it wasn't like, um, you know, you have a, a couple demos and you say, well, can we change this? Or, you know, over time you kind of, you know, massage things and, you know, do what we do now. We do, we, we never finish stuff, right. We're constantly in the studio <laughs> for like years practically. Um, so it, um, it was just sort of a, a reminder to me that, um, you know, what we're hearing, the intricacies of the band was, was really raw. And, uh, and I know when you listen to a lot of the early Genesis with Peter Gabriel, you know, it's sort of easy to sort of criticize the eccentric singer when there's a lot going on and be like, Oh, you know, he was just, you know, really into himself. But when you try to put yourself in a situation like Peter Gabriel, who is, you know, is part of an ensemble, you know, he's part of a team, he knows it. Uh, but he's, 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 he's trying to, in that creative place, you know, put something over things that are, are pretty intricate to start with. Um, you, you appreciate what we have even more because if you look at Foxtrot, I mean, that's just, you know, one of the more perfect albums that we can, can, can name. And, that was done on on that level, so uh, I mean Peter Gabriel's okay in my book. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's well, he's he's okay. We'll we'll give him a passing grade. <laughs> we we know going back to uh, Trespass that they were doing the material live entirely, right, and having it all set before they even started recording. And apparently, with this, they only had the fully live worked out versions with watcher of the skies and can utility in the coastliners. Um, and of course no one can possibly fault them for writing suppers ready in pieces. And apparently close to the edge, you know, a month before was written in pieces. Um, well, except that, that apparently close, uh, you know, uh, according to the lore that we have close to the edge was literally assembled via tape, but (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, okay, all right. <laughs> so Genesis actually worked a bit harder. I mean, and may- maybe it shows in some way. So, shall we go into the songs, gentlemen, the tracks, and and start to consider this? Absolutely, as we do. So, the album we've already agreed that that Foxtrot is is seminal. So, I would is the opening of Watcher of the Skies at very least iconic. I mean, is this, it's so identifiable, right? Between mm. the, the, the big Tony intro and then the, you know, the, the Morse code guitar drum thing that comes, I just, oh, God. Yeah, yeah I described the, the, the Mellotron as a tundra. I mean, it's just a very cold sound. It gives me that feeling of being somewhere in, in, in a mountain or possibly space. Um, it's electromechanical. It's, it's, it's magnetic tape rolling 
over a head in a you know repetitive cycle uh, it's an amazing frigging instrument and 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 you brought it up you know with with, with Stephen Wilson no doubt he was influenced by um you know Tony Banks and others during this period it's an amazing sound just to start with my my thought uh, when i first hear watcher of the skies is that it almost seems modern in a sense that uh, you know you're talking like the the early 70s the things that we associate with the early 70s um there's a certain modern feel to it that uh, when i say modern you, you can use that term loosely uh, but um it doesn't sound like anything of that time to me and especially the i mean the 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 drums and the and the way the drums and the keyboards come in in particular uh it, it doesn't have that sort of early 70s classic prog rock sound that a lot of like that was that was really coming out then um now you know Prague has all sorts of different styles and sounds, so it's it's hard to really say what that is anyway. But um, it, when that when Foxtrot starts, it, it's really almost timeless to me. It, it doesn't. Uh, I think I think if we would play that for somebody who didn't know what it was, I don't think that they would guess that it, it came out of the early seventies. It's as close as I ever need to get to death metal. And what I mean by that is like, 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 like it, it's got all the intensity you need between bass and drums and guitars and keyboards. And it's just beautiful. And, and, and I, I think it's just a music lesson, a lesson in dynamics, a lesson in performance and expression and accuracy that a lot of players who, who use volume as a crutch could, could learn from this track. Mm. There's a certain atmosphere that the, that the opening chords and this whole sound present, and not you know it is iconic. It is it is timeless, like you said, Tom. And it it just to me it you know you have the beginnings of these classic albums that we talk about, and there's there's nothing better in a good in a prog prog album than just sort of a sort of a long beginning of instrumental just that kind of announces something is about to happen and that you're about to begin the journey of this album and you know this is my favorite of of the early genesis period with peter gabriel and you could have you could put you could have put these albums in any order, and I would have said, "No, Foxtrot was the last one that they did. That was the one. That was it." And then Peter Gabriel left after that. It, there is something about those chords at the beginning that that to me sort of announce, "This is it. This is get ready for something special." Um, and the the dramatic atmosphere that it provides for Watcher of the Skies. This clutch. Uh, do we know it's in six, or do we not even care what it's in? I yeah, this? I you know I. It's funny that you bring that up, Ken, because you know when you hear that crazy rhythmic thing, you always think, oh, this must be some strange time signature. But then, 
it's 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 completely even and pretty normal. Yeah, and and oh, let, let, when they break out of that, the then and, 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 and then Phil just like starts the the groove. Oh. It's like damn, and he pits those tight snare hits. Mm-hmm. <laughs> God. Well, and that you know that that goes back to something that I had sort of wanted to to set the stage from the beginning, and you know again in in today's environment you always you 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 can fall into the trap of thinking of Phil Collins as as a singer and 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 a pop singer whatever you want to say about him he's a badass drummer badass drummer <laughs> amen you know one of the things for for me that really gets me excited and it's it's not a huge part and it's kind of throughout the uh throughout the album, but certainly on this track, Hackett's tone is just yummy. When he, when he has those Uh, little breaks. I didn't have my notebook with me in the shower, but yeah, yeah, yeah. I I couldn't stop thinking about Hackett's tone all morning. Um, Like in modern times, he like whips out these sounds and he sounds like Tom Schultz from Boston. Right. But it's like he wait. He was like trying to sound. It's like Steve, just just play that original shitty ass sound. Just whatever you have to do to recreate that shitty sound. That's what we like. I mean, it's 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 so. <laughs> it's like it's gritty and and slick at the same time. It's so weird, but I love it. You know. Mm. So like I said, in in those little breaks that he gets in between the verses, oh, it just it gives me a warm fuzzy feeling. Absolutely love it, and and really, you know, I don't know. Just there's so much a warm, going on. Fuzzy feeling, uh, a warm fuzzy feeling about Ken in the shower with a notebook. No. <laughs> <laughs> I, I that was brand new. I don't know anything about that. So yeah, no, I think Ken. Is there is there ever a time when you do have your notebook in the shower? <laughs> <laughs> I, I just, I had this, 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 I just, I mean, the, all the modern Hackett stuff, he just sounds too good. And, uh, and, yeah. There I, are moments, are moments throughout this album where I think, man, you know, didn't they just have another track for him to double that line? Or, yeah. or was this pre, was this pre-chorus? Couldn't he, be, couldn't he throw the vibrato on the amp a little bit and just mix it up a little here? Um well, that's what Tom was saying. It's got kind of that live. They just put it up there, and they, you know, what what they captured is what they captured. So, Ken, do you remember? I don't want to get ahead, but but I might. Um, do you remember the one day of the summer? This was probably like the summer of ni- you know ninth grade, where we all got together in my bedroom and we recorded the Mad Egyptians, and we just we just wrote a silly song, and I do you remember that? Dave Cowart. He was yeah. our percussionist. Dave Cowart, Andy Bugle. And we, you were playing Dave Cowart's <laughs> Ibanez Stratocaster <laughs> through this tiny little nasty crate amp that just didn't sound good. <laughs> and I swear, every time I hear the opening guitar lines to get them out by Friday, that's what I, that's the tone <laughs> that I hear. <laughs> <laughs> And I'm like, maybe they just could have dialed the distortion down. Like, it sounds like he's playing so, like, hesitantly and tight 
and I'm picturing this because he's got so much gain on the ant that he that he can't even control the sound. But then once the song gets rocking, it, it's it's like, damn, yeah, I love it. But it's just funny. That is funny. And then they switch it up, right? Because you go from Watcher of the Skies, which is, you know, very sci-fi-y and, and, you know, aggressive in, in a lot of ways. And then you move into Timetable, which, you know, the, the first note that I have here <laughs> with my tongue firmly in my cheek is Hobbit shit and young person philosophy together. <laughs> <laughs> what? What? <laughs> What could possibly be better? You know, <laughs> so you've got you've got the sci-fi song first, and then you've got the the Hobbit shit and young person philosophy in the second song. So you're covering all of most of your prog bases in in two songs here. Yeah, I mean, we're giving Genesis a pass on a lot of the storytelling, the narrative. I said in our last episode, I guess Paul and Tom, you weren't there, but. Uh, uh, sometimes I delve into what's behind the stories and it, it inspires me. And other times I just end up right where I started where, damn, it's an amazing melody. I don't care what the hell he's singing about. Yeah. I said that with my tongue firmly in my cheek because I don't mind any of this. I think overall, um, I, I, I find, I find the lyrics in this album to be enjoyable to sing. I, I like them. I like the line, um, why can we never be sure till we die or have killed for an answer? I mean, it's a little melodramatic maybe, but at the same time, it's it's kind of a, a cool way to say it. So I'm totally on board. I love, you know, I think, I think with the storytelling in this song in particular, it, it's very evocative. It creates that sort of, that mental visual image that goes along. You can see, you know, this this empty castle with this this very <clears throat> large ornate table that you know is is no longer in use. And you know, Paul, we've 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 played this card before, but it goes back to the Ozymandias and the your place and time thing, right? Uh, all these you know wonderful monuments to man often you know they wind up blown to shit because that's the way life yeah. is, right? Yeah. And, yeah, yeah. What 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 might makes me uh, really like this is that it, you know timetable, right? It's the message to me is timeless. We're we are constantly dissatisfied with our our present day, and we're always looking in the rearview mirror, thinking that it was better at some point in time for whatever reason, right? And that there was a, another time that that you know people acted the right way. People were supposed to be supposed to be right, but it never was right. It never it always it was always it's always been the same the same cycle. And and I love that this was 1972, right? So mm -hmm. here he is in 1972 singing about hey. Uh, the times when kings and queens sipped wine from goblets gold and the brave men would lead the ladies out of the room to Arbor's Cool. Talking about when honor was more important than anything else. And, and yet, you know, in 1972, they were singing about it as though it that wasn't the case anymore. Right. Like there was some grander time in the past. And, you know, I 
when I was singing this, when I was 18, I was thinking the same thing. Oh, you know, the old days, you know, when, when, when they were originally singing about that. And I was thinking that was the time when everybody was valor and, and, right. and, and had integrity. And, and now we sing about it today. Oh, remember the time, you know, when, you know, so it's just, it's this, to me, it's, it's, it's an amazing sort of concept that just sort of is cyclical and it never this sentiment never seems to go out of style and i agree and like i said you know maybe the the actual words are a bit over the top but it it's a valid statement right and it's it's a valid statement that's presented in a beautiful melody what's wrong with that what does this foreshadow? Because I feel like this song is is ahead of the Genesis timeline. Ooh, mm. an- I, I, I'm 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 catching a little glimpse of Duke preview of Beauty to Come. That's what it is. Yeah, Phil Collins fucking banging out. I I dropped f bomb. Damn, <laughs> banging out the backing vocals on this one. Love it. We'll get to the we'll get to Phil's vocals. <clears throat> Get him out by Friday. Yeah. All right. So I, I, I've held on to this up till now. And it's not even, you know, how long is it? In the first minute of this, of this track, you get, what, three different sections? And when you get into that, ugh, Mike Rutherford, fucking brings it <laughs> okay mm-hmm. <laughs> when when he starts to just play his face off because again i haven't mentioned rutherford specifically in the first two tracks although i you know there's there's a change there's a maturation in his in his playing on this record and i find myself really really enjoying what he's doing but when we get to get him out by friday and he, you know he, he gets into that that one section. You're just like, "Holy crap! Are you kidding me?" And it's not even that long, but it's it's just long enough to, you know, do what it needs to oh, do. Any one of these three songs, the three sleepers, could have developed in the, into a 22 minute song, or you know, for that matter, Watcher of the Skies could have been the peak of a 22 minute song. I mean, I mean, I think they they're just so on their game. At this point, and they're, they're they're working through so much material, and these songs almost end too quickly for me because they're in such prog mode. Absolutely, yeah. Well, and and so here's a here's another statement that I I can't. I had this idea last week, and I have not been able to get it out of my head since. Get them out by Friday. Reminds me of. Jesus Christ Superstar. <laughs> very theatrical. It, yes. It's very theatrical. There are different characters. Each character has his own musical theme, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. And yep. and the way it sounds, right? So even when I was talking about Rutherford shredding, there are points, and, and again, just to, to set the table, because I know, Paul, your experience with Jesus Christ Superstar is different from mine. My experience is based off of the original studio recording 
with Ian Gillen, and I. Yes. Wow. And, and my understanding is yours is based off of the original soundtrack recording, which I think is yes. different. It is. So the the original studio recording, and, and, and I don't know, because in 1970 mm. or 1972, I was zero or two years old. But there are some similarities in the way. <laughs> not one. Not one. Either zero, zero or two. Or two. <laughs> it, it's, well, I was one. It, it seems to me there are some peculiarities to what I'll call the, the English interpretation of rock music at the time. So that that bass line and that tone, the the sound of Tony's keyboards, sort of the, the the quick rhythm and everything else, that combined with the theatrical nature of it is is why I can't get past that. I just thought that was interesting. That is an interesting comment uh, about that, and I th I think it's I think it's yeah, it makes perfect sense the way you describe it. It definitely has. There is a little bit of a dated sound to this particular. Uh, compared, you know, we were talking about the timelessness of right. uh, Watcher of the Skies. Is there a ridiculous tempo monster uh, when they when the vocals first come in after the after the introduction? It feels like it. It's like the hardest thing to come into at the same time on in the car. You know, because you're just like count, you're just like trying to count it in, and you're ready to you're like inhaling to sing, and they're like already off to the races, and you're like, what just happened? I, I want to say, I want to say that in the version on Genesis Live, there's a massive tempo monster, and I was actually going to bring that up, so I'm glad you did. So maybe it's maybe it's purposeful. I've had I'm always meant to go back and listen and compare, but I didn't. I find it a little bit like it's just kind of odd, right? They're doing all this great musicianship. And then there's just this, what appears to be giant faux pas. Mm. Okay. But, you know. I, I, I think it's amazing. You know, when you, when you look at this, and I don't, I don't know how long um, Get Them Out by Friday actually is, but you've got one, two, three... It's 8.35. It's 8.35, and you have four different, oh, I'm sorry, five or six different characters going on here. Yeah. And, and again- They he, put a lot of <laughs> stuff in there. They put a lot of, it's like very concentrated. <laughs> if, if I were to describe that to you, you'd be like, well, what the hell? There's no reason. But it works, and it's mm -hmm. so good. Yeah, and, and they I mean, they switch from one to the other, and you're just like you can follow along. You know where you are. It's ah, uh. they they are so in sync and so kind of kind of polished it, with the way they work with each other. Like you said, like you know, you get the this verse that's just slamming, and the bass is just righteous, and then and then like it kind of calms down for a second, and then the twelve string comes in, and it, it is so seamless and and you know put together so well it's they're 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 to me they're they're at the at the height of uh, again the height of uh, what they're what they're trying to do here and, and when you listen to genesis live again it, they were able to to perform this live oh yeah you know it, it so it, again this wasn't this this goes back to tom's point this wasn't studio tricks or anything else this is what these guys were doing and yeah. it's it's righteous Righteous. Righteous, dude! Uh, I, I agree. You know, and and the way they're they're able to make those transitions so quickly 
And it's not like when you get into the the Mrs. Barrow section, right? You feel almost like you should have some sort of disorientation from from speed change or whatever else. But you you love Mrs. Barrow's sections as much as you love the Winkler sections, right? Because they're all awesome. <laughs> <laughs> they are indeed. Now, what I find interesting, though, um, you know, it, you, you always run into the thing because I spent a lot of time listening without necessarily having the lyrics right. When the Winkler goes the first time, and I love it, I represent a firm of gentlemen who recently purchased this house and all the others in the road. Just the 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 the, the um. The cadence there is awesome. I love the way he does that. But he yeah. says, in the interest of humanity, we found a better place for you to go. Go, 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 go. I swear in that first time through it, I've always heard it as, we found a better place for you to go. Go Rome, go Rome. But it mm. it mm. it clearly is listed in the lyrics as go, 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 go. So I just thought that was interesting. The uh, lyrics that I'm looking at right now have it to go, go, whoa. Oh. Go, whoa. That is not what is listed in the uh, <laughs> in the definitive edition remaster. <laughs> oh, controversy. Wow. Controversy. Yeah, I, I uh, like – so there's a couple things that, that happen throughout this that are fantastic for me. First of all, because of the different characters and the different parts, there's this shift in, in, in the dramatic content of what they're, they're talking about, right? And that, and that shift from one to the other is, is just fantastic. And I think that gives a little bit more credence to what you're saying about the, you know, the Jesus Christ superstar type of, you know, it's very dramatic. It's, it's very, it is very musical. Yeah. Um, and, and, and the musicals in the musical sense, um, um, is that am I even making sense? It's very musical in the musical sense. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's very much like a musical, is what I'm trying to say. It, and it's a it's a musical in eight minutes. It is. It really is. And like like my favorite part of it, um, you know, is when he he talks about uh, a blo a block of flats with central heating. I think we're going to find it hard, <laughs> right? And he and it and it's rising. It's 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 coming out of this sort of lower part and it's rising and then the next guy is in now we've got him yeah. right it's just like boom and um and i love it and i and i also i just love the the cadence of sadly since last time we spoke we found we've had to raise the rent again right just a bit just a bit, <laughs> just a bit. <laughs> uh yeah, after that, Mary, are we agreed to leave? Uh, Hackett starts a solo, and it sounds like a fly buzzing in my ear. How do we feel about this tone here? <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I have a problem with the tone uh, outside of the part that I mentioned at the beginning. Okay, uh, I don't. I don't know that the tone here really irks me. I I, I personally don't have any problem with it myself, but. But but it is it is an interesting call out, Ken, because as this album progresses, I do think that Steve Hackett is slowly approaching what I will simply refer to as relayer tone. 
<laughs> yes, yes. You know, he doesn't he doesn't quite get there, but it's in the neighborhood. It gets more and more brittle in places. Yeah. At any time, he could just go full relayer. <laughs> but I think, you know, it, I think it, it's very... The, the one thing that I, I think is present on a lot of this is, is the sound of 1972. Yeah. Right, to, to Joe's earlier point. Which I think is dissimilar if you compare it to its contemporaries of like the yes album and roundabout and close to the edge, they, the, the, those have a little bit more like the, like the tones, particularly with the guitars seem to be a bit, a bit more, uh, mature, mature. Yeah. Huh. Which makes the relayer tone all the more ironic since it occurred after yeah. all of that. It does. <laughs> <sighs> All right. Well, we're leading up to my my, my favorite one. Uh, do we need to round out this story, or do we even know how the story ends? They're going to oh, make it, people it is my smaller. Sad duty to inform that whole section. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're going to make people smaller so they can get more of them into the apartment. <laughs> <laughs> and I think I, I think I read somewhere that the story moves ahead to the year 2012, which I guess oh. we have we haven't really started making people smaller yet. <laughs> At least not physically. Did they, did they predict Ray Wilson? Oh, <laughs> <man>. <laughs> oh wow! <laughs> not sure about that. I don't even know what that what just happened there. <laughs> Poor Ray Wilson. All right. So, Ken, you have a fondness for Can Utility and the Coastliners. Yeah. What is this? It's another Ozymandias. What's the guy's name? <laughs> is it, uh, oh gosh, I forget the guy's name. Imhotep? It's not, um, it's not Imhotep. It's uh, King Canute. Yeah. This is an amazing, amazing track. Um, and it's so easy to take for granted. It starts so mildly, and then it just explodes. And by the time we get to Rutherford's bass pedals, I'm just like hemorrhaging. It's amazing. You know that that is an interesting point, right? We've all had the experience, and, and maybe this is a stupid thing. And if it is, I'll cut it out. We've all had the experience of going to concerts, and at some point you know, the bass player is going to whip out the bass pedals. Next thing you know, your entire chest cavity is, you know, rolling around and you're going, oh, yeah. But in all actuality, they're, they're not often used in studio recordings, are they? Uh, I mean, I, I, let's put it this way. I don't recall them being quite so obvious as they are here, where it's just like, ooh. Mike's cut out the bass pedals. Yes, please. <laughs> I, I mean that—that's—that's that's my perception. Maybe I'm totally out of whack on that one. But well, Chris Choir was known for bass pedals later on. But yeah, you don't really think about that during a recording. Yeah, they certainly don't seem to have the same effect in in most recordings. Um, not certainly not like they do on this track. Yeah. Yeah. The the. Acoustic guitar rhythm 
that comes in at at one minute and forty nine seconds. Um, before all that magic oh, happens. Yeah. Yeah. Beautiful is that? Uh, that I'm pretty sure I had like my first. Uh, well, it wasn't really my first a moment, but one of the most seminal listening to records and or tapes and headphone moments on that particular really uh, track. Yeah. I mean, that just really, I'm pretty sure for like three years, I was trying to figure out how I could write a song with that, that same rhythm uh, with acoustic <laughs> guitars in it. If you don't really think about it, right. And, and you, you start talking about Foxtrot, you get fixated on Supper's Ready, you get fixated on Get Him Out by Friday, you get fixated on Watcher of the Skies. So to Ken's point, you've got um, Timetable and Can Utility and even, even Horizons as sort of the sleepers, things that you at first blush wouldn't necessarily think about. But the song structure here, I think, is this is a very good representation of what I was talking about with this sort of musical balance between all five of them. Right. And it, it's just, it, it's, it's phenomenal when you, when you, you know, you're like, Oh yeah, this song is freaking great. Yeah. I mean, it's almost reminiscent of, I wonder if, if we had done Genesis first, if we would be comparing everything to Genesis, but it, it's, it's, it's similar to like on the S album, with something like uh, a venture, right? Right. Like you never think of that really song when you think about the Yes album, but boy, it is delicious. And at five minutes and forty-five seconds, this song has everything that you want. It does, yeah, uh, including massive bass pedals. I mean, very. The last uh, vocal lines. I don't think I have any lyrics up or anything like that. But I love the authenticity of the way Mike does this recording, I, I guess because it's live, but like you can feel him switching from the acoustic to the bass, to the bass pedals. And there's like natural pauses in there where Phil is keeping everything going. And there's, yeah, it, it's very real to me. Yeah. I was going to say the last vocal bit to me sounds a little bit of a, like less, less well put together than just about everything else. Uh, I don't know why I feel that way. I just kind of feel like it's uh, just just kind of misplaced. I don't know. It's um, it, it's it's fun, but it is a bit of a whiny pop tune tacked onto the end. Yeah, th thanks. That's I think that's exactly what I was trying to to come up with. Whiny pop tune. Uh, <laughs> and the end is just like put a bit. Okay, sorry. Yeah, <laughs> we got bored. <laughs> But it's fun. It's, Tony, it's Tony's got this fun. nice bit on uh, 12 string. Come over here. Just finish that one real quick. Is is that their beer commercial moment? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the end of Can Utility could be a beer commercial. <laughs> <laughs> the whole fable itself is is just one of sarcasm. So may, may, maybe they're actually tying it together pretty well at the end. Um, jumping to Horizons, I just I was obsessed with it. I must have di didn't I play that in between every band rehearsal? Paul, I, just, I I remember playing Horizons nonstop. I remember you playing Horizons in uh, a lot in more in more than one location. <laughs> I think when we would have lunch, sometimes we would go back and hang out at lunch back in the by the choir room. 
I think you would you would bust it out there as well. <laughs> Those melodies are just I mean and, and I, I suppose they're all derivative of Bach and Mozart, whatever, but uh, uh it's just beautiful that will always be with me, those little lines. Horizons is I think in some ways almost necessary as a palate cleanser, right? Hmm. You you've you've gone through all of these these four great songs already and you know there's there's a lot going on as we already talked about you're up you're down you're left you're right you're everywhere there's like all these different characters there's there's a lot going on and this gives you a chance to sort of catch your breath before you take the 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 plunge into you know the the joy that is supper's ready so you know and, and i know that i've taken shit for you know me giving crap about acoustic songs on on records and, and what i've come to realize is i don't mind acoustic songs on records i just don't like clap is is what my problem is <laughs> wow wow <laughs> so hmm. i i'm i'm totally i you know i i agree i think i think horizons hmm. is absolutely beautiful i think it it, it has a very definite purpose in the, the way this album is tracked, and I find it to be very enjoyable. It was perfect when you flipped the cassette to side two and then and started this, you know, to get that. Yeah, yeah. It was it, It's basically like the introduction to some Supper's Ready. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. All right, shall we, gentlemen? How indeed can can we finish talking about the song in less time than it takes to play the song? Let's just do it. What can you say about Supper's Ready? Supper's Ready is phenomenal. Um, you know the the important things in terms of lore wise. Again, we've already mentioned this. That that I think it's cool that Tony wrote the intro. On guitar, Mike Rutherford loves to talk about this. I've heard and read Rutherford talk about this particular section a couple different times because he always gives Tony shit that Tony uses a a fingering that, as Mike says, a guitarist would never do. <laughs> but Tony's not a guitarist, and the fact of the matter is, it's absolutely beautiful. Another thing that I found interesting in my in my preparation for this is. You know, I think we've all probably at this point heard Peter Gabriel's interpretation of this. And, and Tom, you had brought this to our attention today about, you know, it's it's a journey song that takes you on a journey. And and he had some experiences um, with with his girlfriend and, and visions and dreams and and things of that nature. Right. And and all of that is is really very cool. Um so in, in an interview, Peter Gabriel summed up Supper's Ready as a, quote, personal journey which ends up walking through scenes from Revelation in the Bible. I'll leave it at that. Um, and there was, there was a point where I remember there was, I saw an interview with Peter Gabriel talking about seeing or hearing Phil sing that song. And he's like, it was really weird because that, song it's like he said it's like seeing someone wearing your pajamas i think is what he said um 
<laughs> which is, you know, it, it's really very interesting because for for Pete, that song in particular was was very very personal. So we've all heard that story, right? Very cool. In in my preparation for this, I came across Steve Hackett's alternate interpretation, which was there were some drugs involved, and Pete's wife Jill may have had a bad trip, and that's really where all this came from. So, yeah. so you know, you can you can kind of balance those two, two things out a little bit. Uh, that seems to be the more reasonable explanation to to it. <laughs> Um, some other general lore just to kind of get through it. Obviously, everyone also knows that Willow Farm was the, you know, it was originally written by Pete to be a standalone song. And at some point in the construction of this, you know, it was decided, hey, we should put Willow Farm in the, in the middle of this. And it, it serves a couple of different purposes um, with regard to that. Most notably according to to tony was it it kept it from being you know too intense and stagnation part two which is is mm -hmm. kind of cool oh really he actually said stagnation part two referring to the song stagnation um yeah let me see if i can get the actual quote yeah, yeah, yeah i remember he, i remember he really that, hammers yeah. on that one as is, is, is not being his favorite I think there's the beginning of the idea that they just didn't want to be repeating things. I took that quote as being they 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 were just kind of thinking like this. They wanted to do this big epic song, and it just felt like it was going down that same path. That it was just going to be an, another another stagnation. Right, and they uh, needed a kick in the ass. Yeah, yeah. I don't, I don't um, think and that's stagnation part two necessarily. You know. Uh, I, I I have spent a ridiculous number of of literally hours over the past few weeks listening to <clears throat> Supper's Ready in its various forms. I could I could probably do an entire episode just on Supper's Ready. Um, <laughs> I have a feeling we're going to at some point in time. I, we we probably should. I'll try to boil it down just to to not belabor the point too much. There, there's so much superlative superlative stuff to say here. And it, this goes back to what we talked about with the definitive version of this. And here's here's sort of where I landed on that. And, and it's it's interesting in Genesis having the ability to hear the original with Pete and then have certainly the seconds out version with Phil singing. And, and what I came across is there are certain <laughs> sections that Peter just delivers better. Um, the iconic line in here, the "Hey babe, with your guardian eyes so blue," right? That is that that melody is sung three times in this song with different lyrics each time. And for when Pete sings it, there's something about that delivery. There's a personal connection. There is something mm -hmm. in the way that he delivers that line that moves you, that none of the other people who sing it, whether it's Ray Wilson or Phil or Nad, it just doesn't come across quite the same way, right? However, flip side to that, there are some other sections in this, um, 
and I'm speaking to you. Where are my notes here? I am speaking to you, um, guaranteed eternal sanctuary man, and Ignaton and Istakon and their band of merry men, where I think Phil knocks it out of the park. He sings those sections so effortlessly. And what I'm left with is almost a, a yearning, if that's the right word, if that's not too downright ungrateful. But I wish on it would have been interesting if Genesis had shared vocal duties in some of these songs, rather than have Pete do most of it and Phil sing strictly backup. If they had traded off lead vocals more, I think that would have been interesting, a la, you know, Kansas or King's X or something like that. Because there are, like I said, for me, I think there are parts of this that I just think Phil excels at when he finally took it over. But there are other parts that Pete is clearly better at in terms of the vocal delivery. And I agree, Joe. I mean, it's it's amazing to hear Phil Collins sing this stuff. I mean, you, you're really there with him. You don't feel like this is just a... A knockoff, or okay, this is they're just doing this for the sake of doing it uh, for the fans. I mean, this is when Phil Collins sings a lot of this stuff, he brings it, he has that grit, you know. He has we all know him for the the ballady stuff later, but when he um, when we really need him to go to a certain place, um, he has the grit and. I, I agree with you. Um, I'm glad you brought that up, Joe. I mean, because I, I know uh, how much wonderful uh, harmonies have we heard from from John Anderson and Chris Squire. And they become sort of one and the same. I mean, a lot of times, Genesis and yes, but I mean, I, I would have liked to hear more with Genesis, um, the 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 two voices, because they um, really complement each other. But uh, you know, I think it, it could have been a little bit more like the the Chris Squire John Anderson uh, thing, where um, there's so many great harmonies you don't almost you don't hear them as harmonies. And yeah. we've talked about this uh, King's X as well. Um, you know, it's just the sound. And so I would have liked to have heard that a little bit more, but, um, you know, it's, it is what it is. You know, it's, we, we still got the good stuff. So, oh yeah. I, you know, and, should, and like I said, I, I almost feel ungrateful saying that, but maybe if there was another album, um, you know, after Broadway, uh, it would have been nice to have that, but, you know, seeing the, um, how things transpired album by album, and, uh, you know, I, I can see that just their style and how they went about writing songs that there wasn't that room. But I agree with you. Um, I would have liked to have heard that even maybe like a modern album, like, OK, it's, you know, the year 2000 or something. And they came up with something new. It would almost be impossible just with, you know, the dynamics and ego yeah. and whatever in their, you know, the modern day, but I would have, how great would it be, to, you know, just to be, you know, you know, prog dreamers, that it would be a, a great album to have the two of them singing in a certain way. Um, you know, one could be a Phil Collins song and, 
and Peter Gabriel singing underneath, and then one could be a uh, Peter Gabriel song, and and Phil Collins is singing underneath, and it could be a call and response kind of things. Um, but it, it's a it's it's a it's a nice dream yeah. to uh, say, wow, this is you know could have been nice in the uh, scheme of things. The other thing that I find interesting about this song, as I've listened to all these various versions, and I, I made this comment in the group text, is Willow Farm seems to be that section of the song which leads itself to the the widest breadth of interpretation in terms of of when it's played, right? And and one of the things that like if you listen, it, it, the the wikis describe Willow Farm as you know the lyrics being Python esque, which is is very true. And and the original and here on Foxtrot is sort of over the top, right? But when you listen to Seconds Out, Phil takes that way up like five notches, and and his his presentation of Willow Farm is it, it's it's farcical. It's so far out there. And when I listened to Steve Hackett's version from what was it, 2013, something like that, at uh, at the Royal Albert Hall, I was struck. It's always there, but in that particular interpretation, the the similarities between what I'll call psychedelic Beatles, Yellow Submarine-ish type stuff, is really, really obvious. Mm. Um, mm. a lot more so than it is in some of the other, I mean, if you listen closely, you can pick it out, but it's, it's, a, it's a lot worse there and worse. I don't mean that it's, it's a lot more obvious. Yeah. And if I had to say, uh, if I had to force rank the different parts of supper's ready, like this is the part that, like the apocalypse in nine, eight, and it's probably the part that I'm like, yeah, okay. <laughs> Maybe I am waiting for the end for the end here. Yeah. Uh, well, well, it works live. I mean, you really need something. For sh- for all sure. that screaming and the and the. Yeah. I mean, I brought up on the text that uh, this is really intense, really hard to sing. It's a lot of high <laughs> notes. Um, it's not broken up by a lot of breaks. It's not broken up by low notes. It's just you know. Uh, up there and yeah. uh, it, 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 it's. In the key of E, but I noticed that during the Royal Albert Hall tour, they brought it down to D, which makes it a, a little more sustainable, at least I for feel, uh, for now. Yeah. I feel like uh, I was I was getting a lot of, um, and this is reversed, like fish during this part, right? Like I I think, wow, it sounds like fish may have really been influenced by. By this particular section of of Genesis. Oh, absolutely. So, um, I, I I want I want to just cover two highlights. I don't know if we've passed by these sections, not because we're now we're talking about the Apocalypse of Nine Eight, but I just want a couple of notes that I had. Um, the the guitar solo stuff by Steve Hackett and um. Right around the time where where Peter invokes the I need to activate my prayer capsule. And the guitar solo there is my favorite uh, on the whole album. And this is if Steve Howe had this tone, 
for his um, for Relayer, I think we all would be a lot happier <laughs> um, overall. But but the uh, the 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 part, the whole solo is great. But the part right before the finger taps, where it's just like do 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 do, it's just the tone is just so perfect for mm. everything that's happening there, and and I, and I love it. And I. And Willow Farm really took me a long time to just kind of be okay with, uh, and I and that little that little part where he just goes a flower right before they start really helped oh. a lot because it really sets, you know, it, you're in this sort of dreamy section and yeah. you've gone through so much already in the song, and it's just like this little cue that's almost like okay, wake up, we're gonna have some fun now, oh. and and they really start it. But I, as much as I like it and as I hum it and it sticks in my head, the whole part around the mum to mud to mad to dad, <sighs> dad diddly office, dad did, diddly office. Like, I, it, it's Love so it. much fun. I think of it, I call it to myself, this is the Hermie doesn't like to make toys section <laughs> because when I hear the tape manipulation to make the little elf sounds that they have with with the you know mom to mom to dad <laughs> it reminds me of that scene from rudolph the red-nosed reindeer yeah. where where all the elves are going hermie doesn't like to make toys hermie doesn't like to make toys hermie doesn't like to make toys <laughs> 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 yeah you know all, all of this conversation reminds me of something that i've been holding on to for weeks uh that i almost forgot so my my poor children have been subjected to <laughs> have been subjected to Foxtrot and particular suppers ready multiple times in the preceding weeks um, because I've been listening to it so much it's just impossible for them to entirely avoid it. So one day we're driving around and Willow Farm starts and I hear Grace from the, from the back of the <laughs> van go, oh, I like this part. The other parts were kind of creepy. That's awesome. <laughs> Which you know, it just that that sort of tickled my uh, my my funny bone a little bit. And then Carter has you know because he was he was back during the break uh, when I was listening to this, and he is fixated on the the frog was a prince, the prince was a brick, the brick was a an egg, the egg was a bird, or whatever the case may be. What, however, that that sequence goes. He he has. I know he's heard that at least three different times and commented on it each time. And by the third time, he was actually like ticking it off as it was going on. So you know, it, there there is a certain utility in Willow Farm that sort of transcends all ages and age groups. So you know, I, I think there was. Yeah. There was a reason why it's in there, and I, you know, I think that's part of it. Oh boy, this this line does deserve a mention, uh, real quick. Um, I'm pretty sure that where we grew up, th there was a band older than us that went, went by the name Narcissus. Does this ring a bell? It does ring a yeah. bell, absolutely. Yeah, and we played with them in Lansdale. And they, they they kicked our asses. They played "It's Your Move," and they had like the full organ with the Leslie. I remember that. Yes. Yeah, and they, they they did a wonderful job. 
And it's only years later, uh, Social Security took care of this lad we watch in reverence as Narcissus, who's turned to a flower. Mm. A flower? <laughs> <laughs> and, 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 and we were just, you know, I, I, I'm sure that, that, that I had listened to, uh, you know, my, I had a dub tape just like you had a dub tape from Kathy, and, and I'd listened to this a hundred times, but not knowing what Narcissus was or how to spell it, um, didn't fully appreciate that, that, that someone had turned that into a cover band name. Yeah. Hmm. So one other thing about this, you know, we talked about the um, Guardian Eyes of, of Blue line, that melody, right? Mm. Did anyone else sort of suffer under the, the misapprehension that that sort of ended the song, right? My, I, I'd always carried around this idea, and I, I don't know how or why or how long or whatever the case may be, that, you know, that was right at the end of the song. But when that melody comes back in, you still have, what, a good two minutes after that of just slaying? Mm -hmm. I mean, it, mm -hmm. it, there's there's so much emotion that happens after that already emotional line. It's just, it's stunning. And I think this, maybe, Paul, this is what you and I were sort of talking about, in that the overall structure of this song is so strong, mm -hmm. and it's so easy to sort of miss some of it. Because you, you, there's so much good stuff everywhere that mm. you have to sort of take a step back and go, wow. And, and even though your brain triggers you, and I, maybe it's because it, it, you know, it goes back to the beginning and, and that's the normal quote unquote song structure, right? You, yeah. you sort of, you, you reprise at the end and boom, you're done, but they, they pull back this reprise and then they just keep going. And you're, and it it's so it's so powerful and and there yeah. there are some cool lines of Gabriel talking about that particular line and why it's it's important to him that's very cool. Hackett nails this at Royal Albert Hall. That 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 solo just goes on forever. It's just a beautiful section. Yeah, and then after all of that. And 23 minutes of absolute glory. It's a fade. They fade <laughs> out. <laughs> well, like, can utility goes, but a bum. So no, no risk of beer commercials here. They just, they just fade out. And, um, and I think it's a really interesting choice when you write a 23 minute epic and it's I just, it, it's just an interesting choice to say, yeah, we're just faded out. But they, maybe they, they faded maybe. out on seconds out too. Yeah, they did. So, you know, so it's not like they fucked up the ending and they just had to fade it out right. in the, in the record. Yeah. I yeah. mean, that it seems, I don't know. We're, we're obviously shortchanging. We're blowing through half the album. And, and we're not getting into the nitty gritties. But that's not to say that there isn't just loads of tasty stuff going on here. And again, it's yeah. tasty stuff from all five of them. Yeah. We'll do another episode and we'll read every lyric because it deserves <laughs> exactly. it. <laughs> I, I have no doubt that we will. But I just, I, I want to be perfectly transparent that, you know, it... it and I think people who like Genesis and understand Genesis and Foxtrot, you know, we all know the, the constraints that we have. 
Um, and certainly with, with this group yeah. of people, we talk too much as it is anyway. Um, yeah. <laughs> so, you know, we're, we're, we're going to have to get back into this, but suffice it to say, we understand and appreciate how phenomenal this track is um, in its in wonderful 23-minute entirety. Um, and, and I hope that we do take the time to, to go back and, and get into it, sort of like we'd been talking about with some of these, you know, uh, sort of landmark songs. But it, I, you know, I, I feel like we've, I've gushed too much already. Huh. On, on this, but it's, this album is so good. And this is such a phenomenal way to end any album. Uh, you know, there's nothing to do, but hit repeat at this point. Yeah. I, I think that, you know, if we go back and do, you know, compare the different live versions and the different iterations that, that we've gotten to, to to look at or hear from this, and, and you know, try to find a definitive one. Even though Joe, you've pretty much already told everyone that Foxtrot is your definitive one. So but that's uh, just that's just mine. We won't be on we won't be on the edge of our seats, <laughs> but it'll be still fun to talk about it. I, I, it'll be it'll be great because I, I mean, we could talk about Lover's Leap and the lyrics and the interplay of the of the, the twelve string guitars. I mean, we could talk about that for an hour. <laughs> I mean, it's it, it, it's so beautiful and it's so incredible and it's so just, you know, there is no long introduction. There is no atmospheric setup. It's just start. Yeah. And it, it yeah, it's um, it's a it's a terrific piece. And you know, I for one, I, I can't remember things very long, so it takes me years to to really, you know, get to these things, but. You know, I there are any day of the week I could be singing another whole section of this, like it's its own, you know, microcosm of of the musical universe, which I think they all are. It's 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 it's, it's nothing short of magical, uh, even mm. though I I I think it's about absolutely nothing. I think it's you know some some good shrooms. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but. Oh, just compositionally, Pythagoras with the looking glass reflects the full moon in blood. He's writing the lyrics and then they change from E minor to E major. <laughs> the lyrics of a brand new tune. And I feel that major chord just like ripple the hairs down my arm. And this brand new tune is like in my body. <laughs> Beautiful. <laughs> so uh, you, you could chalk it up to, uh, you know, drugs and alcohol and dumb British hippies, but, but just, you know, the song alone has, has, has a transformative effect. Totally. Yeah. I totally agree with you, man. Mucho, you've been pretty quiet. What's what's your, what are you thinking here on supper's ready? And You know, well, you had brought up earlier um, and I, I always feel guilty about bringing this up because I, I feel like a, you know, a, a broken record. Um, but you know, I have to say it. Um, you know, we're all such, you know, Marillion fans. You can really tell that Fish was inspired by Peter Gabriel in many ways. And I think while you guys, while you guys were, um, you know, reciting some of these lyrics, um, I mean, Peter Gabriel is so poetic 
and uh, you know we 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 definitely uh, hear that in the the early Merillian records uh, with with fish. Of course, you know we hear it throughout Fish's career, uh, not just with Merillian, but um, I mean there is a, a certain way of description and a, a poetic sense that you really get with these uh, these Peter Gabriel Genesis records um, that you also get with the early Marillion. And it, it's not to say that, you know, Fish is, you know, ripping ripping off anyone. He, he, you can just tell he was really inspired by it and, yeah. and he was really moved by it. And this is what we're um, going over right now is really the, um, in, in many ways, the heart of early Marillion. And that's, I'm, I'm almost like, you know, it, it, to me, I, I really see the birth of, 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 of Marillion and, and it's in a, and you're paying, you're paying, they're paying um, respects to Genesis as opposed to, you know, uh, Hell yeah. trying, trying to be like them. So that, that's really what, what came to mind um, as, as you asked me what I was thinking about. <laughs> like, I'll just say, I don't, I don't want my comments about good shrooms or anything like that to, to detract from my love of this, uh, this or, the, or my admiration of the creativity. And certainly the the lack of brevity that the creativity is is put in one one of the things that I'm sometimes amazed with is you you listen to a prog rock song and that song might be 15 minutes long and but there's only like a verse and a chorus and an, and and another verse and then those those you know those 12 or 15 lines are just repeated throughout the whole part Right. You know, I printed the lyrics to Supper's Ready, and I did print it at font size 12 from my aging eyes. But it's five, five full pages of lyrics. <laughs> I mean, there is, and, there, and there, there isn't a lot of repetition at all. And it's really impressive, the, the dedication to, to, to that creativity and that creative uh, power that's behind this is... Is really something else. It's it's quite inspiring, actually. And, and you know, and we we talked about this with practically every band that we've talked about. And again, this just hits us in the face with Foxtrot. But I mean, ag again, Genesis puts out an album in the seventies every year, and this is what they come up with. I mean, I, I know again, this is a broken record because a lot of these bands that we talk about. Um, the 70s was just ridiculous every year they come out with something and and they're they're immediately touring and then they're immediately back in the studio and then they're they don't spend a zillion uh, you know months or you know even you know plus yeah. years in the studio uh, i mean this is what they come up with they come up with foxtrot and and this is not just foxtrot but i mean Talk about the uh, early yes years. I mean, the, I mean everything, everything. I'm not going to name every band, but I mean, if they were around in the 70s, and there's something that we talk about, 
it's it's the same thing. I mean, every year they come up with this, and um, so 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 just, Tom, what you're saying is they don't take four years to come up with talk. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, they don't. No, they don't. Um, okay, but they they, they they paid for it. Pete is 22 at this point. Born born in 1950. So he's 22, roughly, in 1970, and they admit how competitive they were and how the band was everything. And well, when they finally you, did think how you try guys to have were lives. At, at 20 years old or whatever. <laughs> well, yeah, 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 yeah. But I'm, I'm, I, I'm just saying it doesn't last forever. Which, and, and off the beaten track, but this brings up something that, you know, we need to put a pin in so that we can get to it in, in three years from now. Peter Gabriel started his solo career at like 25. 25. Mm -hmm. well, and, and he already had the entire Genesis. I mean, it's, it's mind boggling the way that whole thing went down. Yeah. But anyway, mm. so hopefully at some point we'll come back and we'll spend, you know, another two hours talking just about suppers ready. But you know, this, this album, I, I don't think you can say enough good things about it. Uh, it's, you know, with the exception, maybe <laughs> that it, you know, there are a couple of sounds that are a little dated or whatnot. Even then, it doesn't really matter. This this album, to me, is phenomenal, top to bottom. It sounds like all four of us hold it in extremely high regard. And we like all of it, right? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I don't even mind the guitar tones. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I, I, there's, there's obviously a lot more that could be said, but I think we've, we've said enough for now. So I will thank you gentlemen for, for joining me on this uh, somewhat extended palaver. I think honestly, it, it didn't go quite as long as I was afraid it was going to. <laughs> <laughs> But uh, we will continue, obviously, with next episode when we move into Selling England by the Pound. And we will see, you know, where Genesis went from this this potential high watermark and as we explore the rest of the catalog. So I appreciate that. I look forward to uh, our next palaver, gentlemen. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I, I need a whole hour just to figure out what New Jerusalem means. We hope you've enjoyed this conversation on Foxtrot. We have, as always have enjoyed sharing the conversation with you, and we invite and solicit your feedback. So we invite you all to reach out to us with your thoughts on Foxtrot or, you know, what is the definitive version of Supper's Ready. You can reach us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. We are at ProgPala on all of those, where you can search for Progressive Palaver. You're more than welcome to email us. Our email address is progpala at gmail.com. Progressive Palaver is, as always, available for, for subscription and download on Apple, Google, and Spotify, and we are hosted on SoundCloud. So until next time, thanks for listening. Like, I just find it fascinating how everyone has to mention that this Mellotron <laughs> was purchased by Ki from King, King Crimson. You right? always like, hear that, right? <laughs> this used to be King Crimson's Mellotron, everybody. Like, as though that, I guess that, 
and it's cool i guess it gave some sort of credibility and it was like wow it was you know we bought it from king crimson but just it's just i just love that because it just makes me feel like you know if i just walked down to kennett kennett square <laughs> you know and i walked into the bar and saw the bands playing yeah you know i see them all the time i get to know them and and one day i'm like hey you sound that mellotron <laughs> I'd like to buy that. I need a melodrum. Yeah. <laughs> well, and you know, again, I'll, I'll give credit to our. our <clears throat> hang on a second. You buddy, <laughs> you done, old man. It's nice to have Buddy walk. It's like you know, he's like the fifth member of the palaver when he walks <laughs> when he walks through the, the room. <laughs> he certainly showed up in enough of our recordings. It's how we know we've probably been talking for too long. Yeah, when, when Buddy finally gets up to get a drink of water, or, or Ken starts working out. <laughs> <laughs>